Our text for this weekend comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2. You ought to be happy that you have a digital Bible because Thessalonians is not that easy to find. 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2. I'm going to begin in verse number 1. The scripture says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and, in other words, different event, and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? In other words, the apostle Paul was telling the church, this was a staple teaching of the early church, that they knew about the end of the age and the end of time and the coming of our Lord and the gathering of our gather, a gathering of us together to be with him. Verse number six. And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they may be saved. This is one of those passages of scripture where you're like, I need a preacher. I need, I need, I need somebody to explain to me. Can you, can you tell me what this means right here today in our series alternate universe, I want to talk to you on the subject that I'm calling the restrainer. Sounds like a wrestler, doesn't it? The restrainer. Actually, it would be a good description of who it's talking about. But anyway, let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we give you glory and honor. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your guidance. We thank you for ministering to each and every heart today in a powerful way. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, you may be seated. Let me say from Jump Street that I'm going to be talking about some heady things today. Um, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I will try to simplify them and make them as understandable as I can. But moreover, I pray that they will inspire you to take your role as God's end time, glorious, powerful, light and life-giving, Jesus-loving church of God that God has called you to be a part of. As we come to the text, we find that the church is shaken. The text says that they were shaken in mind and troubled. Not too much different than the church today. As I look out at the landscape of the church world and the world at large, but specifically the church world, I see a church that is shaken. A church that is divided. A church without a moral compass. A church that has become worldly, confused, and combative. Moreover, a church that is scattered a church that has lost its allegiance to the word of God and to the house of God. And the, the stray from the house of God began before COVID 
And you know this because I used to hound y'all about 1.7 times a month. Y'all remember that? 1.7 times a month, 1.7 times a month, 1.7 times. That was before COVID. And then COVID hit and uh, there were reasons for people to stay away from the house of God. Legitimate reasons still are, right? People who are immunocompromised and have to be careful and things like that. We get that. But there are a whole host of other people. I believe the majority of the people who are not in God's house. And excuse me if I'm talking about you, but I am. Because I've never been called to be politically correct. I've been called to be biblically correct. And if you're going to be biblically correct, sometimes you're going to tick off the PC, you know. But there's a whole slew of people right now who claim to be serious Christians who have just used COVID as an excuse to stay at home in their pajamas instead of coming out to the house of God. And so when I look at at the landscape of the church, I, I find a church that is drifting, a church that is shaken. Some are leaning left, some are leaning right, but few are standing, standing firmly on God's word. The church is shaken. Its foundation has been challenged. And right now, in many ways, it is emblematic of the leaning tower of Pisa. Slowly, 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 slowly going like this. But when we come to our text, we find that the church of Thessalonica is shaken for other reasons. When Paul wrote this letter, um, there was, a, as they say, a whole lot of shaking going on. And there was shaking going on because they, they thought that the day of the Lord was at hand. They thought that uh, tumultuous, turbulent, tribulatory time was upon them and they got scared. Simply put, they thought that the period of time referred to in the Bible as the tribulation period or as Jacob's trouble or as the day of the Lord was at hand. They, they looked around and they saw a world that was crumbling and a world that had gone mad and a world that was crazy. And they saw the persecution that was going on about those who stood up and named the name of Jesus. And so they started to think that the day of the Lord, the, the great tribulation, the time where God will pour out his wrath upon the earth for those that have not received Christ as Savior, and therefore their sin was upon them. And the reason why they thought this is because they had fake news back then, like we have fake news today. Their fake news was a little different than it is now. Our fake news comes virtually, and our fake news comes through TV waves and Internet waves and all that kind of stuff. Their fake news came through epistles. Notice he said, uh, do not be troubled in word or in spirit as though some letter is from us, the text said. And so back in those days, you had imposters in the body of Christ who wrote letters and signed the apostle Paul's name to it. And in those letters, they told the church that what they were experiencing around them was the day of the Lord or the tribulation period. And and Paul says that to them, don't believe the fake news. Don't, don't believe this lie. And he writes them. And matter of fact, he tells them that to believe as believers that they would be here for the time of God's wrath was a weird doctrine. That's what he actually says. So what does he say that, Pastor? Well, notice the word spirit. Let me read it again. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and 
That means something different. And our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be so soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if it's from us as though the day of Christ is at hand. Let no one deceive you by any means. Notice the word spirit here. The word spirit here literally refers to a doctrine that is out of sync with something that was theologically previously established. And so the Apostle Paul tells them to believe that you are entering into a time or living through a time right now, whereas believers in Jesus, you are actually here on the earth when God's wrath is being poured out, is a weird doctrine. Why? Because Paul had taught them well. He had taught them about the age of grace. The period of time that, that you and I now live in, Paul referred to it in his epistles as the mystery, the mystery, the mystery dispensation, the, the time period on God's prophetic clock where nobody actually knew was coming and it inserted indefinite period of time that began at the resurrection of Jesus Christ and will end with the snatching away of the church that was inserted into God's prophetic time ca- ca- uh, calendar. And God taught them that during this age of grace, the judgment of our sin would be placed on Jesus and that God would be satisfied with that judgment. He taught them that because of the price that Jesus paid on the cross, the judgment of God for sin would not be counted against them, but rather Jesus' righteousness or right standing would be imputed to them. He taught them this. He taught them that the church age was a time of God's great favor upon mankind despite the craziness that would be going on in the world. He taught them that although others would be infected by the spirit of the age, that if they would stand firm in their faith that they could be protected in a time where others were being infected. He taught them that during the church age, the age of God's unmerited free favor, that God would not be counting up people's sins and holding them against them, but that that sin would be canceled and was canceled and nailed to the cross of Christ. He taught them this. He taught them that during the church age that they would have authority over the enemy and that no weapon formed against them would prosper. He taught them that that even though they were listening to and living through tumultuous tough times that 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 should not get them to think that they would be experiencing the outpouring of God's wrath upon the earth he taught them and he said to them don't draw don't let no one deceive you don't draw the false conclusion that you are living in the day of the Lord. Can I, can I talk to the church for a minute? Don't draw the false conclusion. Despite the craziness that is in our world, despite stuff that we haven't seen before, despite the birthing pains, despite the beginning of sorrows, despite the fact that things are coming quicker and harder now than they ever have come before, that this is that that the Bible talked about. This is not the time of God's judgment. Trust me, you you, you ought to be grateful. This is not the time of God's judgment. Don't let anybody deceive you into thinking that as a blood-bought, blood-washed child of Almighty God, that you will live through the day of 
the Lord's. In other words, the Apostle Paul reminds them of the prophetic order of events. And he says basically this, that we are going to have rapture, gathering of the saints, prior to judgment, and then second coming of Christ. That he will collect the saints before he unleashes the judgment or his judgment upon the world. And then after he collects the saints, we will go into a period of time known as the tribulation period where his judgment would be poured out. And this is consistent, by the way, with the example of Abraham and Lot in the Bible. Anybody remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? I don't know if I should ask this question or not, but but I don't know that we are more far gone than Sodom and Gomorrah. We might be close, but I don't know that we're more far gone than Sodom and Gomorrah. And you remember the story, God tells Abraham, he says, I'm going to send judgment upon those cities. And by the way, the same way that God forewarns us of what is to come, and the reason why God forewarned Abraham and God forewarns us is because just like Abraham was God's friend, we are called the friends of God. And if you were here a couple weeks ago when I talked about the fear of the Lord, you understand that God shares his secrets with his friends, and those who are his friends are those who fear him. And so in the same way that God shared with Abraham judgment that was about to come before it actually came so that Abraham would not be afraid but rather be prepared. God shares with us about what is to come before it actually comes so that we won't be afraid but rather be prepared. And you remember the conversation of the dialogue that God had with Abraham, right? God said, I'm going to send judgment on these cities. And God said, no, no, God, you, you wouldn't do that. And there's like 50 righteous people in that city, would you? God, that, that don't sound like you. God, I, I know, I, I know you. I'm, I'm your friend. I walk with you. I talk with you. We commune together. God, I know that you would, you would spare an entire city if there was a group of people in the city that were righteous in your eyes. And God said, you're right, Abraham. I wouldn't do that. He said, how about, would you do it? And I don't have the numbers exact. I guess I should have read the story before I came and preached on it, but I didn't. And he, he whittles it down. He gets it to 10. And he says, God, if there was 10, if there was 10, would you do it? And God said, I wouldn't even do it for 10. And, and he said, like this. He said, what if there was one? And God said, I wouldn't even send the judgment if there was one. Does anybody think there's at least one righteous person in the United States? Does anybody think there's at least one righteous person in all the world? And so if God back then under a covenant that was a type and shadow of our covenant, but not quite our covenant, spared sending judgment upon those cities for the sake of the people who are righteous and in covenant with him then, how much more under the covenant of grace, signed, sealed, and delivered in the blood of Jesus Christ, will God withhold his judgment from this earth? This is consistent. And you remember what First Peter chapter 2, verse number 6 is. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, he condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly and delivered righteous Lot. And delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day, seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Can I tell you what that means? It doesn't mean that he was bothered by what they were doing. Now, he should have been. But it means he was hanging out. 
in the wrong environment for too long. And what that began to do is vex his spirit. Can I tell you something? If you hang around filth long enough, it will eventually begin to vex your spirit and vex your soul. And it is why the scripture tells us as believers to come out from amongst them and be ye separate. Don't walk like them. Don't talk like them. Don't behave like them. Don't do the filthy things that they do. Don't condone what they do. Don't say yeah because it's PC. If it's sin, it's sin. And that doesn't mean that you have to be a snooty saint, but it does mean that you have to separate yourself. Otherwise, you will poison your soul. But notice what happened. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Aren't you glad that God knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to rescue and to and to reserve rather the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. What is it telling us? It's a reminder of how God operates. That God removes the righteous before he sends judgment. That he removes the righteous before he sends judgment. And it's interesting that the context or the example that the Lord led me to is Abraham and Lot. Because as I said, Abraham is a type of our covenant. If ye be Abraham's seed, then you are heirs according to the covenant. The Bible says that we all stemmed from Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant is a type and a shadow of our covenant. Except it wasn't quite our covenant because Jesus had not yet been crucified and resurrected again. So as strong as the Abrahamic covenant was our covenant in Christ is that much stronger. And if God would rescue Lot because he lived under that covenant, I don't know about you, but I am convinced that God will rescue us who live underneath the covenant that has been signed, sealed, and delivered in the blood of Jesus. And then he says, and he elaborates, and he tells them what is going to have to take place before the second coming, or the events of the tribulation period. And he tells them a bunch of things. First thing he says is, there must be a falling away first. This refers to a widespread abandonment of moral truths and a revolt against God and his ways. This is what we are seeing begin to happen. The stage is being set. The the world is swapping morality. It's changing morality. It's redefining morality. What was once commonly agreed upon morality. By the way, that doesn't mean there's never any room for us to improve because some things do need to change. Some things do need to be redefined. To something, certain things we do need to be awoken to, right? But, but that doesn't mean that some of the things that were once held as right, which were right, all of a sudden need to be reconverted and be called wrong. So th- this is happening. This is setting the stage for what the Bible calls an apostasia, a falling away first. And then he says, the man of sin has to be revealed or unveiled, the Antichrist. He's called the man of sin, better translation, the man of lawlessness. This is the person who will lead the world in a worldwide revolt against all commonly held standards of godly morality. He says before the second coming, this must be revealed. Paul refers to him as the son of perdition. Literally, it means the man who leads the world into ruin 
by helping them accept a new morality. New morality doesn't set you free. New morality leads to ruin in people's lives. Do you know why? Because it becomes easier to sin. Thank God when it's hard to sin. That's a good place to be in. When, when you can't just do it, when, when you're not just free, when, 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 when there's conviction, thank, thank God for those moments. Those, that's a good thing. Don't, when it's not easy, when it's easy to sin, that's when you got to say, uh-oh. That's when you say, God help me, God search me, God, 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 God do a work in me because, because it should never be easy. There, there should always be something that is, that is pricking your conscience and speaking to your heart. When your conscience stops talking to you, you better just watch out. You better say, oh, I'm on bad, I'm on bad ground right now. So the man of sin would have to be revealed. But then he says, and here's what I want to remind you of. Then he says, let me remind you of what's withholding all this from happening. Let me remind you of what's withholding the man of perdition from being revealed. What's withholding a worldwide mutiny against the things of God. What's keeping things from becoming completely unraveled. He says, let me remind you of this. And look at again what he says. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 verse number 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The mystery of lawlessness literally means the secret plan to lead the world morally astray is already at work. Remember I told you seducing spirits? Long range plan. Remember I told you how the enemy works? The enemy works through systems of influence, through perversion and distortion, and that begins to condition the mind. And so the secret or the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. The plan to pull people away from God by redefining morality and godly virtues is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Who is the restrainer? What is restraining the world from completely coming unglued. And somebody said, well, it's already completely unglued. No, you don't understand what completely unglued is going to look like. What is standing in the way? What is stopping it? And what is stopping it and what is standing in the way is our gathering together onto him. As soon as we are taken out of the way, the very thing that is restraining the evil in this world will be unleashed in unprecedented Proportions. And so I want to spend just a few minutes talking to you about how to take your place as restrainers. Restrainers of evil. Matter of fact, Jesus said, for this purpose was the Son of God made manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. Right? We ought to be like our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We ought to be interested in restraining and destroying the works of the devil. And so this text tells me a few things, and I'll get to the, the restraining. But it tells me, number one, how much God loves us. 
that God loves us so much that he has to make sure that we're out of the way before he unleashes judgment. It, it reminds me of a good papa who's about to do something that he knows is not good for his kids to witness or maybe harmful to the kids. And so what he does is he, he puts them in a safe place and then he goes, does what he got, got to do. Why? Because that's how God is. He loves us that much. But then it also reminds me how much God values or honors the work of the son. See, to unleash judgment on people who have been placed in Christ is to devalue and dishonor the work of Christ on the cross. It's to, it's to invalidate what Christ did. Because you remember what the scripture says in Isaiah 53? It says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to put him to grief. When he makes his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. God will see the travail of his Jesus soul and be satisfied. On the cross, do you remember what happened on the cross? Do you know that on the cross, their judgment met grace? Their judgment was poured out on Jesus so that grace could be lavished upon you and I. On that cross, the judgment, the penalty for sin was satisfied. Satiated is the word in the Hebrew. What is satiated? Satiated is eaten so much that you can't stand the thought of another bite of food. It's Thanksgiving. Where, where when your sweat gravy comes out of your pores. That's what satiated means. It means that when God willfully and Jesus willfully arranged for sin to be punished on the cross, that it fully met all of the criteria for God's judgment to be satisfied. So much so that on that cross, John's gospel, the 19th chapter, I believe it's the 30th verse, where Jesus said, it is finished. The word was tetelestai. It means paid, not in part, but in full. And so if it was paid in full for God then to take your sin that was paid in full on the cross and punish you again for it is to dishonor what Jesus did on the cross. Paul said, don't get it twisted. You're not living in the day of the Lord. You got to be snatched up out of here before that happens. So what should we do? How do we take our place as the restrainers? Number one, I want to encourage you to restrain the anger. You see it, I see it, everyone sees it. There is so much anger right now in our world. And anger is an anchor for evil. Evil preys on anger and ultimately leads to anguish. Listen to what the scripture says. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads to evil. Anger is a playing ground for the enemy. He works to it. I remember years ago, I was on my way to Dallas. It was the first time I ever uh, spoke on TBN. I was on a, going to Dallas, and uh, we were online, kind of one of the first ones online at the airport. And I always like to get bumped up. Um, you know, they make them seats for little people. 
you know, for like five foot seven people who's like waist is like 28, you know, and, and my waist has been like 48 at different times in my life. And so when your waist is 48 and you're six foot two, you certainly don't want to sit in a little small chair and then you get a, another big guy or another big person sitting next to you and you, you feel like a sardine on a plane. So like, I'm like, if I'm going on a plane, God, I'm going first class. But I don't like to pay for first class. Anybody like to pay? They're crazy. They charge you like five times. So the way you don't pay for first class is you go there and then you ask them to bump you up because they got openings. It's a little cheaper then. So I'd always book the coach. And this is before they had like economy plus or whatever they call it. You know, everything is plus now. You know, plus sizes and plus this. You know, they even got plus pants now. They call them vanity sizes. You know, if you're a 36 pants, you're really not a 36 pants. They make them like 38, but they call them 36 to make you and I feel better. <laughs> Works for me, though, because I'd rather put on 36 to 38 anyway. Anyway, so, so I'm online there, and, I, and I'm asking the lady to bump us up. My wife is with me, and all of a sudden we hear this commotion going on behind us. And we turn around, and, 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 and what had happened was people started to come, and somebody had abandoned, like, these big red luggage bags, like 12 of them in the middle of the line, and you know, at the airport, you're not supposed to touch nobody's luggage, and so everybody's, like, trying to stay away, but but the line is being held up because this luggage is right in the way, and this commotion is going on. All of a sudden, this really big dude, he's, like, six foot six, 350 pounds. He's, like, a Goliath of a guy. He has it up to here. He walks over, and he decides to start moving the luggage, and as he moves the luggage, all of a sudden, the owner of the luggage shows up but the owner of the luggage wasn't six foot six three fifty the owner of the luggage was like a Zacchaeus guy it was a wee little man was he he runs up to the big dude I mean he wasn't eyeball to eyeball he was eyeball to belly button seriously it was the funniest thing I ever seen and and the little dude he gets right up in the guy's belly I'm going like you gonna suffocate son move on back a little bit right he gets right up in the guy's belly. And, and, and the guy, as he was moving the baggage, he mumbled underneath his breath. What kind of jerk would leave his baggage unattended like this? And so the little guy heard him. Look, I runs up to him and says, I'm a jerk. I'm a jerk. You're a jerk. And I'm like, son, you better step back. Your anger is going to lead to some evil right now. You are going to get killed right now because you're angry. Thank God the big guy was also a powerful guy because he stepped away. You say, what do you mean powerful? Because the powerful people are not the ones that use their strength to hurt people who they know they can. The powerful people are the people who walk away. See, we have to get back to some sensibilities. When you can't hurt, but you decide not to. When you have power to crush, but you restrain yourself. When, when somebody is coming at you, but you choose to take the high road instead. We need to be people, if we are going to be restrainers of evil during dark times, who restrain the anger that is going on in our world. Say, well, pastor, how do I do that? How about something simple like Proverbs 15.1? A soft answer turns away wrath. Where, what, 
Where have we gone that we now believe it is our Christian right to go tit for tat with people? You talk bad about me, I talk bad about you. You post something bad about me, I post something bad about you. You say something bad about me, I say something worse about you. And I'm going to make sure I have the last word because I want to make sure that I'm right in every situation. That's not restraining the evil. Let's, let's use our words. Christians, can I remind you that words matter? Oh, they just say that. They just say that. Can I remind you that words matter? Words can bring healing, calm, peace, build bridges. Let's not be people if we are going to restrain the evil. We have to always set people straight. You know what the Bible actually says? Let the ignorant be ignorant still. You know how many times I use that verse? I don't say it out loud because that's nasty, right? Like, if I say I can't say somebody straight, I'm just going to let you be ignorant. Let's walk on. It kind of makes me feel good about the conversation without having to get the last word. I'm like, all right, yeah, sounds good to me. Good. Then I walk away ignorant. <laughs> Under my breath, of course. Let's restrain the anger. But number two, let's restrain the giving up. Because the times that people are living in, people are giving up. Suicides on the rise, 153%. People are weary, and they feel like throwing in the towel. Even good people, godly people. Remember Elijah. Elijah, you know, lives through a time when, you know, the prophets of Baal are, are, are ruling the day, and Queen Jezebel and King Ahab, they're in charge, and, and, and God calls Elijah. He says, I want you to go and prove to all of Israel that I'm really God. And so you remember the whole Mount Carmel showdown. He calls down fire from heaven, and, 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 and he proves that God is God, and then he has all of the prophets of Baal executed, and he expects for a revival to break out in the land. But Queen Jezebel and King Ahab, instead of repenting, she sends him a death threat. Them women are wicked, ain't it takes a lot to convince them. I'm just playing. She said, I'm going to kill you within 24 hours. Can you remember what Elijah did? First Kings chapter 19, verse 4. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Church, we're living in a time where there's an epidemic of I had enough. I had enough fighting. I had enough struggling. I had enough bad news. I had enough lockdowns. I had enough mask wearing. I had enough hybrid learning. I had enough being locked up and cooped up. I've had enough of the political climate. I have enough of the fake news. I had enough of the way people conduct themselves. I have had enough. And there are some people whose enough has become way too much. And they feel like giving up and they need somebody sent into their life to simply encourage them not to give up, but to go on. They need a word to lift their spirit. They need someone who can assure them that this too will pass. They need someone to reassure them that sorrow may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And God is looking for some saints to restrain some giving up in people. And let me tell you, you never may know if you are the one who restrains some giving up in somebody and winds up influencing a generation for the cause of Christ. I remember when I was a young pastor, I felt like giving up because of the pressures of pastoring because it shocked me that Christians were so crazy. Now I'm used to it. It don't shock me no more. 
Like they just as nuts as everybody else. I mean, that bumper sticker, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. I'm like, that's right, right there. That's so right. And I was so shocked because I thought I was going to preach. And when I preach, people are going to be like, oh, that's what the Bible says. Okay, fine, I'll do it. I didn't know they were going to go, I don't really care what the Bible says. I'll do what I want anyway. I had no idea. And so it shocked me. This It's like crazy town. Like I like I didn't sign up for this. I signed up to, to preach and help people to grow and see people walking out the word. I didn't sign up for none of this. I'm like, I'm quitting. I gave up my job where I could make money for this. I said, this is crazy. And I called a friend, and I, you know, I'm Rick Renner, and I said, Rick, I'm giving up. I guess these people drive me nuts. I feel like Moses, you know, when I hit that rock, people you gave me, you know. Rick said this to me. He said, he said, Frank, you can't give up. You've heard me tell this before. He said, you can't give up. He said, we know so-and-so, and he named a pastor of a big ministry in the Northeast, and he said this. He said, the same way God has used him, God's going to use you in the same way. Don't give up. And now those words don't sound like much, but they were a restrainer to my give up. And here we are today, I don't know, 25, 26, 27 years later, just kicking butt and taking names for Jesus, amen. Why? Because somebody stepped up to be a restraining force for God. Maybe you're that somebody in somebody's life. Maybe you're the Mordecai who will encourage the Esther that she was born for such a time as this. Maybe you're the angel that will encourage the Joseph not to leave Mary because that which is conceived in her is really from the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're the Barnabas who will go find Saul who the church has quit on and bring him back so he can become the Apostle Paul. Maybe you're the one who will speak. Maybe you're the shepherd who will go to a stable when Mary and Joseph are just looking down at the baby say, it looks ordinary to me and say, God sent us here to see the Savior. Maybe God wants to use you to restrain the give up in somebody's life. Church, keep restraining. But then lastly, today, I want to encourage you to restrain the division. I want to encourage you to restrain the division. We're a world and a country divided. Division is everywhere. It's in our politics, on our news channels, in our communities, in our families, and sadly, it's in our churches. I can't tell you how many people have been at one another in God's house. I may talk more about this next week, but remember the words of Jesus. Matthew 12, 25. He said, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. Every city or household divided against itself will not stand. Now, I know that. You know that. And if I know that and you know that, why would I be part of the division? Why wouldn't I do my best to be part of the solution? We even call ourselves the United States of America. How odd that title seems during times like this. See, division is a work of the enemy. It's a tactic to tear down what is otherwise destined to be triumphant. It is something that the enemy uses and that God hates. Proverbs 6.16 says, six things, yea, seven things are an abomination to the Lord. And the last one is, he who sows discord amongst brethren. 
Division is hated by God. And I believe that there is a deliberate diabolical division being distributed by the devil to bring families, communities, neighborhoods, churches, and nations to their knees. We've got to recognize it. And we've got to heed the words of Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they will be called the children of God. Oh yeah, but my politics is right, pastor. Are you stoking the division? Doesn't say that people who stoke the division will be called the children of God. It said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Children of God are to be known for building bridges for finding common ground, for being willing to suffer wrong for the sake of pursuing peace. Any married folk out there? Anybody been married over 10 years? You got one more year to go. She's about to kick you out, man. I'm just playing. (laughs) Anybody been married 25 years or more? You know, to get over that hump, sometimes you got to be willing to be wrong even if you're not. Because that's what it takes to have a harmonious union, to walk in peace together. Nelson Mandela said it this way, if you want to make peace with your enemy, you have to work with your enemy. Then he becomes your partner. Jesus said something very similar. He said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same thing? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. I have more to share, but I feel like God wants me to leave it there. Be a person who restrains the division. Be a person who provides bridges to peace, because that's what makes us like our Father in heaven after all. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? Scripture says that we were enemies of God, but we became or we, we were made at peace with God through his cross. That cross was a bridge that took enemies to a place of peace. We need to be bridge builders. My question for you is, all of you watching, all of you here, are you at peace with God? Sometimes when we're not at peace with God, we cannot give peace out to other people. And there's two different types of peace with God. There's peace with God in your relationship with him where you know your relationship with him is right. You're a believer and you know it's right. You feel feel like it's growing. You feel like it's good. Are you at peace with God? But then there's the, I don't even know if I know God. That kind of peace with God. The peace that says if I die this moment, this second, do I spend eternity apart from God? 
One of the greatest ways we become restrainers of the works of the enemy is when we share the greatest message of hope that there is, and that is there is a way for every single human being on the planet to be at peace with God, and that's through the cross of Christ. If you don't know Jesus, if you've never surrendered your life to him, if you've never asked him to forgive you of your sins, if you're here, if you're there, one of our campuses in your pajamas, in your living room, wherever you are, today's your day to surrender your life to Jesus. With every head bent and every eye closed, if that's you, and you say, Pastor, today, I want to surrender to Jesus. I want to be at peace with him. I want my sins to be forgiven right where you are, no one looking around. If that's you, just hold your hand up. Say, Pastor, that's me. Would you pray for me? Would you pray for me, Pastor? Amen. If you're at home and that's you, if you feel that you, just hold your arms up to God right now, right there all by yourself, maybe in front of your family. Let's pray this prayer out loud. Everybody pray together for the benefit of those that may need it. Heavenly Father, I surrender my life to you. I repent of my sins. I make Jesus my Lord and Savior. And I'll never be the same in Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer for the first time and you're watching online, click that little button that says, I give my life to Jesus or write Jesus in the chat so we can reach out to you.